It was all a pipe dream Watching body boarding up on TV Deep at reef, watching tension repeats Eating bakery feeds at 18 Living the dream with no sunscreen Yeah, we were so keen Surfing Aussie pipe Buying Riptide Eating shit pies Maybe hey, Welcome pie. to the Riptide Bodyboarding Podcast The home of bodyboarding Thank you for joining us on episode 21 of our Verbal Journaling And I'm your host, Luke O'Connor Well... I'm here with the man with the golden tonsils. He's been regarded as the songbird of his generation as he delivers the call daily up and down the eastern seaboard, if not to Australia and occasionally to the world. He's the man that has that many puns in his back pocket. I don't think he knows what to do with them half the time. And he's just an all-round down-to-earth legend who I've got a lot of time and respect for. I'm talking to none other than Tez and McKenna, mate. How are you? G'day, Luke. How are you, mate? Good to be hanging out in the lounge with you. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. I wish there was a physical lounge. It's more like a digital <laughs> one, but we can... We yeah, can, yeah, just um, pass, pass the little pillow over so I can just get comfy for this whole thing. Yeah, 100%. If you know, if you need any refreshments at any stage, please let me know. I'll get Doris, our um, beautiful maid, on, 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 on site to get things sorted to you. Anything you need, <laughs> mate. Cigars, yeah. cities, happy days. Love it. <laughs> Man, um, I, I just wanted to start off, um, start off the potty with just getting a general background on yourself because obviously, you know, a lot of people know your name in the industry, but they might not know exactly what you've done and, um, you know, just your whole your whole role you played because you've been there for four decades, man. So we'd we'd, we'd love to get a bit of a background on it. Yeah, absolutely. Gee, I mean, if I wind it right back to the beginning, I mean, I was a surfer. Um, from the late 70s, coming out of Maroubra. So I grew up in Maroubra. It was a good place to grow up. You learn a lot about respect and uh, and all that sort of stuff. So uh, when I was about 16, I moved up to uh, Port Stephens, and that's when I got kind of serious about surfing. And uh, I won a state title and uh, won a big competition at Capricorn uh, 2000 in 1984, I think it was. And uh, that won me a bit of money to uh, turn pro and go on the, on the pro tour. So I did that for a while, made it into, I think it was like the high 60s maybe. I think it was 69th in the world, which is a pretty cool number, let's face it. So, yeah, um, definitely. I think a lot of people are happy yeah. with that number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then, um, yeah, so with that sort of surfing background, I went and uh, sort of uh, ran surf shops and did surf schools and was a surf coach. And I used to write articles for Waves magazine. I've been on that eternally for since the beginning. I've just been trying to avoid a real job. You know, I just figured like, um, you know, I didn't want to follow the same path as my old man. He said, you know, work, work your ass off, get a caravan, go around Australia when you're 65 plus. And I said, well, I'm, I think I'm going to just do that now <laughs> instead, man. Sorry to disappoint <laughs> you. So, um, yeah, so when, uh, when I got the opportunity to, uh, to be involved with bodyboarding, it was a weird thing because I'm, I'm a commentator and I was working on the Australian uh, bodyboard tour. I was at a, uh, an AGM in Tasmania and Steve Kirkman was the general manager and I'm just sitting there with a beer in the corner making up numbers and Steve said, I'm going to um, walk away from the sport. I've had enough. And I think that guy over there uh, with a beer in his hand and pointed to me and said, would be a good replacement. And everyone put their hand up and next minute, <laughs> Tez, is, Tez is running the Australian bodyboard tour. Um, well, it worked out pretty good because um, as it turns out, Carl Bonham was a friend of Kieran uh, Clay who I was working with on the tour. Carl was a uh, the manager, the general manager, CEO of uh, Rebel Sport Australia. So um, we went straight to Carl. Uh, Carl liked what we were proposing, and uh, we ended up getting about I think it was like nearly four hundred thousand dollars over a, you know like a ten year period. 
um, offer Rebel. So Rebel really underwrote the, uh, the the Australian volleyball tour for a while. We put on some big events, you know, ten thousand dollar events and stuff. And the guys on the IBA World Tour then saw that Australia was going good and went, "Who's this Tesla guy that's like, um, you know, making things work down under?" So um, randomly one day I was walking down the street and I got a call uh, from uh, I don't. You know, I don't take these kind of calls these days because there's too many hackers. But back then, it was a, a number from Hawaii. And I went, oh, wow, someone from Hawaii is ringing me. And uh, it was Mike Stewart. And he goes, hey, Terry, it's Mike Stewart. And I'm like, hey, Mike, what are you doing? I'd never met the guy. And he goes, listen, we've been giving your name um, as a potential guy to be involved with the World Bodyboarding Tour. Um, we're here at Waimea. We've got an AGM on. You're on speakerphone. Would you be interested in doing the job? And I said, well... You know, he said, there's not much, there's a lot of work and there's hardly any money. And um, and I said, well, I'm, I'm going okay in Australia. Yeah, I'll have a go at it and I'll see what I can do for you guys. So I came in and took over the year after Kingy won the tour. And um, I think there was three events that year. And the next event we had, the next year we had nine events. So I was able to kind of double it pretty quickly. And then uh, the year after that, we had 17 events. So we went through a really rapid growth period with the IBA where things were just like happening fast and we had good people involved um, and then a couple of years later around 2010 I think it was I was running the Turbo uh, Pipe Pro and Greg Taylor came to me and said uh, look I'm, um, I'd like to have a meeting with you when we get back to Australia I might have some investors we might be able to take this thing up to the next level and of course you know as history showed uh, the money came in and um, we all worked together and uh, put on what I believe was, you know, probably one of the greatest tours at the time, uh, the, the uh, ASP before it became the WSL, was really on its last legs. It was going down big time. That's why the WSL took them over. And during that time, uh, 2008 and nine, we were really going gangbusters. So, I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell. I came in, I worked with Greg. Um, I mean, there's a bit of history there that, you know, um, we can talk about later. Um, there was good things and bad things. Obviously, the money was fantastic. Um, just the management was a, a slight issue. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we formed a great team with Manny Vargas and Seamus Makem and Sasha Specker and, you know, Pete and um, and all the guys, you know, uh, making the uh, the vids and stuff, Murray doing all the graphics. Snakes and Ladders, was that? Yeah, yeah, Snakes and Ladders. So, look, it was just an incredible um, thing to be involved with and, uh uh, then I sort of walked away from it. Uh, Alex took over, um, and then I came back when Alex was running it. He asked me to come back and help him, uh, which I did for a couple of years with the um, I, I, with the um, uh, the, uh, the APB, the Australian, the Association of Professional Bodyboarding. So um, yeah, I did a couple of a couple of years with those guys and uh, finished off in front on Crown Tristan Roberts as the as the uh, champion in two thousand nineteen, and thought, you know what? Let's hand this over. Alex had, um, you know, had a, uh, a job offer to work with the crane company uh, on the, like big money, like a thousand bucks a day, and uh, like you know, you'd be lucky to make thirty thousand bucks as a world tour manager, you know, per year. So it's a very low paying job, uh, but you know, a rewarding job. Um, so yeah, that's it in a nutshell, Luke. I guess that's where then that's where I kind of uh, bailed in two thousand nineteen and said to the guys from the IBC, like, here it is, here's the portfolio, you guys uh, run with it, and, you know, best wishes, you've got our blessing. Yeah, we absolutely nailed it, Tessa, because we all know what came after 2019 and early, early 2020, obviously with COVID and the, the whole um, shutdown of the world and business are going belly up, and I'm not saying you had any foresight or any planning for that, but it was quite a timely time just to, you know, hang up the fins for the time being and um, yeah. pursue other careers. 
Yeah, you're not wrong. And um, look, I mean, the first couple of years, those guys obviously struggled. It was really hard to um, do anything. But I must say, I followed them this year. And uh, I'd like to tip my hat off to the um, guys from the IBC. Well done, fellas. I've, uh, you know, the, I just watched Fronton. I thought it was a really engaging event. Um, I thought it looked fairly professional. And with Jay Real on board as a uh, English commentator, I mean, those guys are heading in the right direction. So happy days. Yeah, I, I have to echo your sentiments further, man. It was so enjoyable to watch that comp. I thought the riding was epic. Um, I think the broadcast has been stepped up a fair bit. The judging was excellent. I really enjoyed how they scored Tristan Roberts for that huge flip on the left in the last two minutes of that heat against the Moray. Um, yeah. I might have been round seven or eight. I, I can't. I think it was round seven. But um, yeah. just just incredible to see because that was the clutch moment that allowed him to continue on to gain the world title. And it would have been so unfair at a wave like Fronton to cut him short when he clearly landed back in the barrel after, man, it would have to be one of the biggest flips of the comp. I know Jeff obviously did a, a huge uh, ARS slash backflip on the, on the right, but Tristan's was super critical back into the bowl. He's landed in the barrel on the sh- one of the shallowest parts of the reef and then turned back around and just couldn't ride out of the white water after he'd been barreled again. So, you know, it was really nice to see that allowing um, progressive bodyboarding and encouraging it and not getting the riders to play it safe there, you know, because they could have just gone, oh, I'm going to get barreled here, make the wave, and I'll continue to rack up the points and whatever. I know he needed a big score, but I just loved how those judges – threw it at him, you know, where other years yeah. it might have been a bit of conjecture. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I was standing in front of the screen uh, going, give it to him, boys, give it to him. I was thinking if they, if he doesn't get the score here, this would be a real controversial moment. Um, and, you know, even if he did get the score, there'd still be some controversy surrounding it from people that aren't Trisha Roberts supporters. So, I mean, it's a lot of uh, conjecture around this and it's uh, – yeah, it's interesting to watch. But, um, yeah, in general, look, uh, Tristan was an incredible champion. Look, when he turned up at Sintra uh, and he won the Pro Junior when before he hit the, the men's tour, I remember I looked in his eyes and I went, whoa, look in those eyes. I went, there's like a fire burning in there, man. I said, I, I reckon I'm going to give you a world champion trophy one day uh, and it won't be that far away. And so when I in 2019, it was only, I think, three or four years after that, um, when I handed him the trophy, I said, remember that conversation? And he said, yeah, and we both sort of like had a little hug together with PLC was there and <laughs> it was a quite a moment. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Tristan Roberts fan. I think he's a great kid and an incredible talent. Oh, man, such an incredible talent. And I think he's a great person also. And I really want to touch back on your point about how competitively geared he is. You know, a lot of South Africans are by nature very – very competitive from the harsh environment they come from and sometimes the upbringing they endure, um, which is just luck of the draw, obviously. But it really does turn them into warriors. And every time I've hung out with a South African, whether it's in Australia or Hawaii or, you know, abroad through Europe, they're always trying to do their best. They're always putting their money where their mouth is and they're not afraid to – they're not afraid to lose. You know, they hate to lose, but they're not afraid to lose because they put everything on the table and you could tell that with Tristan Roberts. And, you know, back to your comment about his eyes with the fire inside them, you can you can even see it through the – through like the TV screen or through the computer screen, if you're streaming the comp, like he is a dedicated individual. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure Jay Real touched on it, that he was sporting a very bad back injury throughout the final days of that competition. Yeah, he had to endure a lot of pain to get through what he did. And uh, that just, you know, 
shows what an incredible uh, what an incredible athlete he is. Look, I, I used to say um, to some of the guys we worked with on the tour back in the day that sometimes you, it's almost like determination for these uh, bodyboarding athletes is linked to the exchange rate of their country's dollar. <laughs> you know, so with the uh, you know with the ran, it's like uh, you know they're seven times hungrier than us, right? And the oh, Brazilians man. maybe four or five times hungrier. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like that. We, you know, sometimes we live in such a beautiful spot down under here and we're so spoiled and everything is so, uh, so easy for us in a sense. Um, we don't have to fight for a lot, you know. So I think that that, uh, that part of their culture um, really, uh, you know, helps them when it comes to competition. Do you reckon that's why our numbers have dropped away so much on the tour? Like, obviously, I, I, I will put the points out here straight away before we go any further that there is an Australian, there isn't an Australian leg on the tour currently, and a lot of those comps are run through um, South America and Europe, and you've got to be on the road for X amount of time, and it, it will be very costly from from you know coming from a, a southern continent like Australia. But why do you think the numbers have waned so so much on the Australian side? Yeah, look, I mean, it was chopping before IBC came along. Um, I, I mean, we laughed the other day and said that IBC stands for independently Brazilian and Chilean. Um, because, <laughs> That's actually yeah. pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's almost like that. I'd like to see if I have one criticism for these guys um, is that is is that they're very comfortable with where they're at. They, you know, I'm sure that they'd like to expand the tour. And yes, I've been speaking with the IBC um, regarding uh, Kiama. Um, you know, so there is potential that we could put a, a, an IBC event on there. But we've also been speaking with, uh, like, some other uh, people who um, have other options as well. It's not a world tour, but it's a world league. Um, and and um, so, yeah, that could be quite interesting. So we're just uh, negotiating uh, with both parties at the moment to see if we can make something happen for next year in Kiama. Oh, man, that'd be amazing. I, I don't know if I heard correctly in the podcast um, you did with Josh Kirkman on the boogie, but was it, was, was, am, I, am I correct in saying, sorry, that um, there is a five-year standing deal with the council down there at Kaima? Uh There was. It ran out last year, unfortunately, because okay. there was a couple of years of COVID in the end there. So, no, we had to reapply for uh, the funding in general. The, the, our money that we had that they were holding for us got redistributed because we didn't use it in time. Um, so we've uh, reapplied for some funding, not quite as much as what we had before, but enough to be able to uh, put something on down there. Whether or not we want to make it part of the world tour, look, it's not functional for Australians to follow this tour, not with the uh, incredible cost of uh, international travel. Uh, with planes at the moment, it's just uh, a bit out of control. And, uh, you know, we're on an island in the middle of nowhere, so it's okay for those guys. I mean, you know, they would say the same back in the day. And I guess this is why they're almost kind of, I wouldn't say they're doing it to us, but um, I would say that, like, they speak in a lot of Spanish in their webcasts um, because they felt like we spoke a lot of English and they're having yeah. a lot of competitions over in their part of the world because – I guess at one point we had a lot of competitions in our part of the world. So these guys have been, you know, you've got to put the shoe on the other foot sometimes. Um, you know, I can understand uh, what's happening. But, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty sad because, you know, we've got so much uh, so much great talent in Australia. And I've been uh, doing the commentary at the Teams Challenge and uh, the Jeff Wilcox and, you know, the Matt Barron, uh, all those sort of uh, competitions here in Australia. And I must say that there's a kind of a renewed enthusiasm around competitive bodyboarding and there's some fresh faces coming through the scene as well so 
right now is uh, a time. And I said to someone the other day that maybe the fact that, like, you know, teenagers are so lazy these days and they want to just do everything the easiest way. And so, you know, because, you know, when they're on the games, they can just Google something, how to cheat it and all that. You know, everyone wants to fast track to the to get to where they want to be, you know, without earning it. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that that, um, that concept, if that is true, that concept could kind of work for bodyboarding because, you know what, kids can jump straight out off their uh, Nintendo, jump in the water on a, on a bodyboard and just uh, have a bit of fun straight away and be doing a couple of 360s by the end of the day. Y- you know, to do a 360 on a surfboard would, you know, take years. So, yeah, you know, sure. I, I think the um, at, at the end of the day that uh, that fun factor for bodyboarding and the fact that it's quite easy to get into um, could lend itself to this current generation of young kids. So, you know, we've been waiting for the next kind of, spike in bodyboarding and i honestly believe that like we're we're coming off the bottom and uh we're heading in the right direction now yeah well tezza i'd be listening to you wholeheartedly because when you think about the amount of time you've spent in the industry and watched over you know the last three or four decades like you would definitely see the rise and fall um of some great empires i i guess like what would you say in your time in bodyboarding has been um you know the term we've um phrase these days is um peak bergen what's been peak bergen back in the day yeah i would say that um you know when when we uh got the investment from uh from greg taylor and the and the investment group with the iba and you know that was uh 2015 was it i think oh, it's really hard to remember back in so long ago um but either way when we started that tour as i said that was you know we went to mexico I mean, that competition in Mexico was like one of the most sublime things I've ever seen. It was 10 foot and we couldn't use jet skis. It was too big to get out. We had one jet ski that would work. Um, you know, the guys were just incredible athletes. Was that and, Jeff uh, and Ryan in the final, if that moment yeah, serves me correctly? Yeah. yeah, it was. Jeff busted a huge invert and uh, won the competition. And, uh, you know, that was a great contest. And um, Fronton was amazing when we, um, you know, when uh, when Jason won it, you know, and that that, that yes, you know, he really came all the way from the trials, didn't he? Yeah, yes. I mean, there's been some incredible moments. We had a great contest um, also in um, uh, Reunion Island at uh, Saint Pierre. You know, when um, oh, the Basque Country guy, what was his name now? God, he he won the contest. He won. He came all the way through the trials, and then he came all the way through and won it. He hit the reef and he just destroyed his face and he just powered on. I just can't remember his name at the moment, but it'll come back to me. Was but yeah, Leo? Sorry? Was it Cleo or Leo? No, no, I'll remember it. He was, he's one of, the top, uh, one of the top guys for many years. Uh, it's funny how things change so quickly, man. I've just forgotten, uh, you know. Oh, you've got that the- much, so many things in your head, Tezo. I, I can only yeah. imagine all the disciplines, like, you know, even you yeah. mentioned kiteboarding, surfing, bodyboarding, I'm sort of body surfing, nilos, and all the different, like the males and the sups you do for surfing yourself Wales and surfing Australia. Yeah. Man, how many names can you remember? Yeah, it's like that. And your brain, I, you know, you soon realise when you get to my age that your brain is just like pretty much just like a one terabyte sort of hard drive, external hard drive. And like eventually you just fill it up and then eventually you have to start like purging stuff. <laughs> You've got to let it go in the recycling bin. Yeah, I've got to make room, make room for new stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's good you're still learning, you know. Yeah, it's but, a, mate, they were, they were incredible. Process. Yeah, they were incredible days, um, you know, working with Snakes and Ladders and uh, Seamus and – you know, Sasha and Manny and, uh, gee, we had an incredible team. And, uh, you know, some of the best days of my life, mate, to tell you the truth. I really enjoyed it. 
well, it looks like through the broadcast, man, I can only remember going back and thinking of footage of you and um, Manny Vargas commentating, bro, and you guys brought some energy. You obviously, yourself with like the silver tongue, the golden tonsils, Manny Vargas with his classic sign-offs and his like, his physical presence, you know, you're almost waiting for him to just jump out of the chair when a a nine or a 10 were going to be thrown down and just everything was um, so upbeat with you guys. Was, was Manny an absolute hoot to commentate with? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And look, I traveled a lot with Manny. I was the guy who brought Manny into the whole scene. I, I hired him. Somebody, when I ran the contest at Pipeline in 2010, uh, we did it on a real shoestring budget. And um, I, somebody said, oh, you should get Manny Vargas. He can commentate. And I went, oh, really? I don't know the guy, but let's, let's call him up. And he was uh, on Maui or something. I said, I'll pay for you to come over to um, Oahu. Uh, we'll put you up. I'll give you, you know, 500 bucks or something. And he's like, yeah, man, no worries. I'll come for sure. And when he came, I just like knew straight away, this is the guy. You know, this is, uh, this, is, uh, this is the guy that we need for the sport. And about two years later, not even that, maybe a year and a half later, uh, is when the money turned up with Greg. And I just sat down with Greg straight away and said, we have to have Manny on as the, the guy. And he goes, no problem. And, uh, yeah, I called Manny up and boom, you know, and then we just cruised for so many years and had so many incredible moments together. He's, a, he's a, an incredible individual, uh, a really uh, a, a really talented guy, uh, incredible commentator. And uh, like you said, just his vibe to be around Manny Vargas is like his vibration is just incredible. It's uh, contagious. Yeah, and you would have rubbed shoulders with a lot of people in and out of events, man, just all walks of life with all the different – um, you know, avenues that you've gone down. Is, is, is he up there with one of the most energetic people that you've worked with? Oh, absolutely. I think he's in, that he's capable of absolutely anything, honestly. I, sometimes I don't think he backs himself enough, like he's a very humble person. Um, so, but yeah, he's capable of doing absolutely anything. And look, I said to people plenty of times that, you know, I've worked um, uh, on, on big events with the surf guys and uh, I've done big events uh, just, uh, you know, for surf life saving and, you know, uh, different types of SUP events and all these different types of things and big events with big money and stuff like that. Um, it, it's just because the money's there, it, it actually makes it worse, to tell you the truth. And people used to say to me about bodyboarding, wow, I can't wait till we get the money. And I'd say, oh, the money's going to ruin it. You know, so um, this is the problem. When money comes into sport, it changes everything because you know that money is the root of all evil, right? I mean, we only need enough to get by. But, um, you know, it's uh, it can create some uh, really bad um, scenes. And look, at the end of the day, it was money that actually brought the whole bodyboarding tour down, as we all know. Yeah, it's so, it's so intense to think about that because, you know, we're at such a peak hype. And I guess you could compare it, and I've used this analogy before, back to like, say, the crypto market or the stock markets or anything like that, like, you know, even the global financial financial crisis that happened in 2007, 2008 or, you know, drag using the term BFC, body body financial crisis back in the, you know, early 2010s and 11s because of um, the way the sport was going. Like it's so insane and I guess you could almost go back in ancient history and say the Roman Empire, how they came to, you know, such dizzying heights and conquering the world and then there's always got to be a reset. You know, and yeah, yeah. that recess can be like is necessary, but I almost feel like with bodyboarding it was necessary, but it's just um, it's just kind of stalled that little bit longer than we'd all expected. You know, there there really has been 
a, a fair few dormant years now where nothing's happened. Like I remember even working with movement mag Tez and like doing stuff on their Instagram and writing stories and, um, you know, did, doing a couple of video submission competitions and all that kind of stuff and enjoyed it so much. But there were times where it was actually really hard to continue to keep going and trying to produce content and get media out there because you felt like you're getting nothing back in return and you're not doing it for that reason. You know, like you want to put it out there. It's your art or it's the the, the news and you want to get people excited, but there really was a dull roar there for a while, you know, and it's great to see it just surging back up. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Look, when I was, uh, when I first kicked off this thing and we had um, BBA, which is Bodyboarding Australasia. Um, it was a very successful uh, organisation. Like I said, Rebel Sports sponsored us. We, you know, ran around 10 competitions nationally per year and we ran them in all states. And three out of the um, seven of them were um, $10,000 events and the rest were all uh, five and seven and a half thousand dollar events. So, you know, we had a little bit of money to, to, to get around and all that. We used to have um, an industry day where I would basically – spend about $5,000 of the association's money running a, running a, like a, a venue. I'd bring in caterers. Um, Kieran and I would sit down for a month or two before and work out a whole bunch of uh, stuff and we'd get it printed up really professionally and uh, bind. Kieran Clay. Kieran is a, a graphic artist and a bodyboarder from the Central Coast who was behind like all of the rebranding stuff from the IBA and Bodyboarding Australasia, IBA Australasia. Like Kieran was a real – unsung hero that did a lot of the graphic stuff to make everything look really good and um so yeah we'd we'd invite like all the big players to come and we would then put it on a whiteboard and we'd have like these you know it was such a professional you know when i look back on it i was thinking like oh man this is like next level stuff that people don't even do now anyway we were trying to get the industry to um to work with us um but you know what the big problem was luke is that like these guys hated each other and when one guy, like, uh, went on um, sale, uh, then he'd go, well, how much are you going to have? And he'd go, well, I'm going to have 20% off my new boards. And they'd go, okay. So they'd do a 30% off sale. And then the other guy down the road would go, they're doing 30, we'll go 40. And you know what it reminds me of is the serpent that ate its own tail. This was a self-consuming sort of a concept for the industry here in Australia where instead of working with each other and working with the association – they just like were so money hungry that they all went for their part of the pie at any costs. And at the end, it was just a bowl of fresh air, man. <laughs> there was nothing left in the end, you know? Wow. That's insane. What, what a great analogy. It's a bowl of fresh air. Yeah. And um, so that's what you truly feel like's happened to the, the, like the industry. It felt like, you know, everyone was kind of not out to get each other, but just had, um, they, they, they should have just, that. They should have just um, said, like, you know, let's uh, all work together and increase our slice. We've got a slice of the pie. Let's make the pie bigger and then our slice will get bigger. But instead of that, they looked at every other people's slice and went, screw that, man. I'm having that guy's slice as well. You know what I mean? So they uh, they effectively didn't work with each other and they didn't work with us. Um, they'd come to these uh, industry days and – and we might get one or two out of 15 or 17 sponsors that came on the day. We might have got one or two that said, yep, we'll pick up an event. And then there'd still be four or five events that were left over. And then I'd have to use Rebel Sport money to backfill it to make them happen. And then they would kept on saying to me, like, why are you guys in bed with Rebel Sport when they're, like, got all these uh, cheap bodyboards and they're dominating the market? You know, like, we, we, want, we need to make our money 
at the bottom end because you know there's not as much profit when you make a like a top end board. And uh, and I'd I'd say to them like, great, let's go, let's let's get some stuff happening. You know, let's give you guys an event, let's uh, turn down Rebel and turn you up. But you know, at the end of the day, it was all hot air. And apart from maybe Mick from BSC and Julia, you know, from World, um, there wasn't a lot of support for anything in this country. Um, people were pretty happy to just hang on to their own cash. And you know what they did was they basically just paid their bodyboarders. So they, that was their excuse to us. They go, oh, all our money's gone, man. We're giving it to those guys, you know. So uh, it, was a, uh, it was a very frustrating uh, time. Uh, I remember when we ran the Australian uh, bodyboarding titles in Port Macquarie. We ran it up there for like six years in a row. And, you know, the, the beauty of doing that was after six years, you've got so many contacts and so many sponsors that come on locally. Um, and it was just a great time in bodyboarding. And we had like a nighttime surfing event. I went and hired like five or six banks of those lights that they use for road work. <laughs> we set it up at uh, Port Macquarie Town Beach and we had like a punk band playing on the beach. Next day we we broke the record for the most amount of bodyboarders riding one wave. You know, we did a lot of uh, – we tried to do a lot of out-of-the-box stuff. And, uh, what years were those, Tessa? If, if you don't yeah, mind they were like 2010, 2012. Yeah, yeah, those are the years that I was there. I was just, yeah. I, was only, um, I was only like reminiscing the other day, like your voice has echoed into my soul, man, from all those, um, those state and national titles, you know. Those were the days when like Sam Bennett was coming up, um, yeah. you know, like Chase O'Leary, all, all those fellas. I remember having such a golden age there. And yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I remember those nights in Port Mac so fondly, mate. Like I, I, yeah. I look back on them with some of my fondest memories um, in, in, in competitive bodyboarding. Yeah, yeah, it was a really proud moment. And, you know, we, uh, uh, you know, through Bodyboarding Australasia and IBA Australasia, which it eventually turned into, um, you know, and through the IBA uh, days and right through to the APB days, um, I can honestly say that, um, you know, I'm really proud of uh, the team that we assembled and the people that worked with us. Um, Some people, um, fortunately, worked against us. um, And, uh, you know, uh, we realised that they were there for the wrong reasons. But, um, you know, in general, 99.9% of the people were incredible, um, you know, and, you know, I, I, I built the best team and uh, these people really believed in the vision that we had and, you know, they were willing to, like, you know, lay on a train track for us. <laughs> you know, these guys were committed to what we wanted to achieve. So it was really yeah, cool. I've got to admit, the best thing with Boogan, it's always been the passion and the undeniable devotion towards the sport, like the love for it, you know, like there's, there's a lot of people that enjoy surfing and, and love it. And there's people that are obsessed with it. Don't get me wrong. They've got a huge fan base, but um, when you meet a true core bodyboarder, who's someone who's just, you know, lives and breathes it, you just get a sense that, as you said, they would lay down on a train track and, and like sacrifice it all because it's, um, it's, it's, it's their blood and their prayer, you know, like it's, yeah, it's a pure love of something and it's very, um, it's very real. You know, I like it. I like the whole bodyboarding scene. I think they do it for the right reasons. Um, there's not a lot of money in bodyboarding. So hence there's the reason because they love it. Right. So, um, whereas a lot of surfers are just on tour to get, you know, cashed up and stuff. I, I don't know. It's money changes everything. Cause you know, I'm a, you know, I hate the whole uh, corporate world. I'm a, I'm a real kind of a, like a, an old hippie kind of a surfer that, you know, likes, uh, you know, that talks about like people's vibrations and stuff and that, you know, I'm kind of like, uh, into that kind of stuff, you know, and I, in the end, I realized that, 
you know, I made so many friends on the tour and I was able to share the vision that we had and, you know, all the promoters that came on board, particularly when we went to Chile for the first time and I went to Antofagasta to run a big event with Arturo over there in, uh, I think it was 2010, the first one. And, you know, and then just seeing, uh, you know, Arika then came on the year after that and then uh, the year after that we had um, uh, Akika, you know, and so it was really nice over a four or five-year period to go over there and watch, um, you know, the uh, South American scene just, like, blow right up, you know what I mean? Those guys are right into it. Um, uh, they don't have the same kind of uh, perception with surfing and bodyboarding as what they have here. It's very much on an equal footing over there, so it's really cool. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that that is epic, man. I've got to admit, that's um, popped up in a couple of conversations and I've heard it from a couple of people that bodyboarding – reigns supreme over in Chile, especially on that um that miracle stretch there where, you know, all the waves are scattered. It just is great to see that, you know, if you're a famous bodyboarder um or a sponsored athlete walking through that town, you don't just have to be a surfer to be recognized. You can come from all walks, which is which is really cool. Because as you said, man, here on the east <laughs> seaboard of Australia and possibly all of Australia, geez man, we're we're the cripples and the surfers are the heroes, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's strange. I mean, you know, the, uh, the the waves over there are really suited towards bodyboarding. I mean, I, dra- I dragged my surfboard around on the tour for a number of years. <laughs> I realised in the end that I'm too busy to surf and that I'll just cost me 150 bucks a flight <laughs> and that it would just get dinged <laughs> up when, by the time I get home, you know. So I, t- I remember I took a brand new board away one year. I never rode it and bought it back and it was destroyed. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that cost me like $1,000 in excess, <laughs> you know, just to take it around. But, um, you know, all of these places that I went to, I found it really hard to surf on a surfboard because, um, you know, uh, all of these, uh, most of the venues were really suited towards bodyboarding. Uh, and then you, you've got the uh, economic side of it, surfboards in South America at the time. I mean, no one was making boards back there in 2008, surfboards that is. Now they've got factories over there. But back then you'd have to bring a board from America, you know, like from the mainland, and they'd be like eleven or $1,200 US. So it was too expensive. And then because everywhere's reef, how do you learn to surf when your whole coastline is reef? You know, yeah, it's the thing. So it's impossible. So it made perfect sense for all those South American guys, particularly through Chile and Peru, to just um, not so much Peru because Peru has got a lot of beach breaks, but Chile is just pretty much just cold water and rock, as you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, they're always going to be good bodyboarders, those guys. Well, Tess, speaking about all the different locations on tour and obviously all the places you've been, the people you've, you've um, met over your time, can you pinpoint one event that had a unforgettable after party? Like I'm talking a rip snorter. I'm talking like, you know, the whole place was jumping, pumping, and you'll always remember that moment with, um, you know, with fire. Oh, yeah, man. This is a legendary story. It was the uh, Confital, like El Confital, uh, the first year that we had the competition uh, in the Canary Islands. You know, before Fronton, remember, we had that barreling right hand. It was such a good wave, and the competition there was – just incredible. Uh, we worked with a guy called Roberto from a company uh, over there who was a production company called Maldito Rodriguez. And uh, those guys, the first year that we put the competition on, I remember they drove me down to the beach and I had never seen a PA system bigger than this. It looked like a U2 concert, you know, so it was just incredible. <laughs> they just went to the next level, right? And I had a really good relationship with Roberto. Me and him uh, just uh, were Great mates. Sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago, walking down the street, just dropped dead. So um, lovely guy. Jeez, and, terrible to hear. Yeah, yeah, it was horrible. But that first year of the Confitar 
what they did was uh, Miller's Beer were having a competition uh, about like uh, bring you and like 50 or, or 100 of your friends, I think it was, to a, like a, a big party that Miller were going to put on with three bands, two stages, uh, free feeds, all this kind of stuff in this big compound. And a couple of the guys who were working on the webcast with us were hackers. And so they got into the <laughs> into the Miller's website and just like uh, made like some kind of a hack that basically said that um, when someone voted for themselves, the vote went to those guys. <laughs> so anyway, they rigged well, the thing. So has a tether, I'm, the- I really don't want to interrupt. I'm really sorry, but we just had um, a breakdown in Recep. Can you just tell me what those hackers did from the webcast again? Yeah. Yeah, so some of the guys from the uh, that were doing the webcast were actually hackers. They jumped into the Miller's uh, Beer web, uh, website and uh, they said it was super easy and they just – reconfigured it so when people made a vote to try and, uh, you know, win themselves the party, the vote would go to the webcast guys. <laughs> so at the end of the day, we won the party. I remember I went to uh, Maldito Rodriguez and said, hey, we've won a party with Millers. And, of course, Millers weren't on as a sponsor. It was a third-party thing. He went, no way, they're not, we're not going. You guys can't go. And I had to beg him. I said, look, we've got six buses. There's like two or 300 people can go to this thing and it's going to be the greatest night ever. And he went, okay. If you say so, let's do it. So we all jumped on the buses and we went into the middle of the Canary Islands and we went to this compound. And how many were you there? There would have been a couple of hundred people there, not all bodyboarders, um, oh. and then just a few locals and that as well. Anyway, um, we've got there and I started drinking and I just – I remember going up on the stage because, you know, I used to play in a band and stuff and I'm playing a band now so I can sing. And I thought, oh, give me the mic, you know, and uh, one of the guys, Ali, who does the uh, commentary over there, is he plays in a band, he's really good. He was, his band was playing. I'm like, and he called me up. He's like, jump up here. And I remember like, I, went, I started off okay. And then uh, it just went black basically. And then I woke up in hospital the next day and I'm like, oh, right, what's going on? I looked at myself in the mirror. I've got like scratches all over my face, a big black eye. I'm like, right, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> and I'm just like so hungover. Anyway, uh, it turns out that I had alcoholic poisoning, right, because they got tequilas out and I'm drinking all these, like, rums and stuff, and I'm just guzzling it. Anyway, and I'm not much of a drinker, to tell you the truth. So um, I ended up uh, out the front, and I was so blind that a couple of guys uh, rolled me and punched me out and stole my iPhone and stuff <laughs> and, my, and my wallet. And then, uh, oh and then yeah, God, someone, yeah, someone found me, like, down the street and went, oh, no, this is Tezza from the IBA. <laughs> and they, they called an ambulance and the ambulance, uh, yeah. So it was a, it was a, yeah, that was probably the biggest night on the, that I ever had on the tour, man. It was a huge one. Whoa. So you were just up singing, and belting out a couple of notes and then it just all went black and you woke up in hospital. That's the last thing you can remember. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember anything beyond that. No. That's <laughs> so, embarrassing, man. Yeah, but it was. That's not embarrassing at all, man. That stuff happens. Well, I mean, yeah, I I had meetings with uh, with Roberto for the next three days. I was so hungover that I could only go on the third day, and I was there for like half an hour, and I had to leave. I had a hangover for like about two weeks off the back of it because I'd never had alcoholic poisoning before. I didn't even know what it was, but it just gets to a point where like you can kill yourself with it, man. You know, if you have too much of it. So um, for sure, man, it's a super dangerous drug. I think you know it's it's very normalized in society and people don't see alcohol as a drug, but it is most certainly a drug and it is certainly most addictive. And it essentially, you know, I like having a beer like the next bloke, mate, you know what I mean? Like, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying no to alcohol, but it's in moderation because it essentially kills your brain cells. Like every time you have a drink, you're slowly killing 
your brain cells, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's my kidney, liver or something inside there just doesn't like alcohol. I don't process it too well, you know, so I try and stay away from it. And, Mate, you know, that's like the best, you know? That's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Just have like a yeah. couple of settlers and, and enjoy yourself and yeah. save, your, save your, um, your back pocket some harm, man, because, God, the, the taxes on grog these days is cheaper not to drink. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's right. And like I said, I'm playing in a band these days, so I'm um, I, I go out and you can't drink if you play in a band. I'm a lead singer, so you know, as soon as you have two beers, you start forgetting the lyrics, you know. So um, I, I I've got to stay straight. And then what happens is when I'm straight and everybody else is twisted, uh, it makes it like you you start looking around and thinking, oh, I don't want to be a part of the uh, whole drinking scene anyway, man. You know, it's pretty ugly, really, when you look at it, uh, you know, in its, uh, you know, at midnight in a nightclub and everyone's blind except for you. It becomes, oh, man, you know, glare, glaringly be obvious that it's, uh, you know, it's an ugly thing. A hundred percent. They always say nothing good happens after 12, man. Like, you know, I've worked in bars all my life, um, probably not for the last couple of years, but um, I guess probably since since COVID hit really. But man, like when I would watch people over the night slowly drink themselves into a state, which I've done before too. I'm, you know, I've definitely hit it, hit the source pretty hard, but like when you would watch it in front of you, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, and you would see these beautiful people that were elegant and they would have nice conversations with you and speak quite well. Like, Mind you, I was working at a bar at the time in Cronulla called El Sol, which is quite grungy and, you know, had a little underground scene. You could kind of get away with doing whatever you want, um, wanted yep. in there. And that was quite strange too because the cop shop was only 100 metres up the road. And no, I swear no, to God, exactly the owner. Yeah, I swear to God, the owner had some deal with the coppers, man. It was unbelievable. Every other, like say, Northies or Fusions or Sting Bar or all the classics, you know what I mean, would get raided by the coppers or they'd come down for like licensing issues and we never had never had coppers come into El Sol except one shift I was there over a sporadic like four or five year period working there. Yeah. I mean back in the day, you know, it was uh we used to call it the Egyptian handshake. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just picture an Egyptian with a little backhand out. But, um, you know, and, and, you know, they were getting their palms greased all the time. It was sad, pretty sad. I grew up in Sydney and my old man was a gangster, man, to tell you the truth. Um, not so much a gangster, but he used to hang around like, uh, you know, um, a, a lot of the guys around that scene. And uh, he was a bookmaker. So, you know, we uh, I grew up at the race course and stuff, um, like around horse racing and stuff. So my Wait, old man just was- let everyone know, Tez? Sorry, I, I don't interrupt your story, but people need to know this. How did you get to school when you were younger, speaking about the horse racing industry? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a horse guy. So um, we uh, we had a big farm down at Kangaroo Valley, which is on the south coast of uh, New South Wales, sort of west of Kiama. Um, beautiful spot. And uh, we had a farm down there with 11 horses in it. And uh, eventually when they needed to flood the valley for the water for southwest Sydney to create a big dam, they actually flooded our farm and they – we went down there once, and they, there was a note in a letterbox from the uh, from the uh, water board saying, "Hey, here's a check for sixty four grand or whatever it was." We had a hundred acres, <laughs> and they said, uh, "You know, get out uh, in two weeks, so, effectively." So we went, "Shit, we got to bring them." So we bought the eleven horses back up, and I was only young, about eight years old. So then I started riding horses to school, and I rode a horse to school pretty much my entire life, from about second class all the way through to year ten. 
Um, and I'm talking in Sydney, in Maroubra and that. So it was like, uh, <laughs> it was pretty unusual. And when Tessa, I, that's uh, unbelievable. Were you rocking up on a grey, brown, black horse? What was the go? No, yeah, yeah, just a, a grey. I had this uh, Marty was his name. He was an old uh, stable uh, pony. They they used to call them uh, lead ponies. They, uh, you know, at the race course when the the um, the big race horses they get spooked about going into the gates. So yep. then they did these little lead ponies would go in the gates and just stand there and go, what's the big deal, mate? I'm here. Nothing's happening to me. And then the horse would go, oh, okay, look, looks like it's safe to go in. So I was one of those horses. And they were just like known as like being really smart. Uh, I used to ride it to school with no bridle and no saddle, um, just with a, a piece of rope around its neck. And people used to go, how the hell are you riding that horse, man, you know? And I'd just get off the horse when I got to school and just like wipe the, the, the white hairs off me longer. <laughs> Um, school pants and uh, off I'd go and, and I'd tie the horse up across the road and then all the kids eventually would bring like carrots and apples to school and go over and feed the horse all day so you know it was a bit of a novelty and uh, when I started surfing I remember I started riding the horse to the beach this is like with long blonde hair and I would have been about 13 I had a Kentucky fried chicken cool light under my arm and I'm riding my horse down and people used to see me in the surf and go you that dude who rides the horse to the beach and I'm like that's me <laughs> yeah it was funny Oh man, that's um. You you would have been unmistakable out there. That's that's it. Actually, incredible, especially at Sydney at that time. Like I know there's a lot of places, out Warwick Farmway and obviously around Kensington and Ramwick, and then you've got Rose Hill and, and my my pop and um grandmother, you know, and my whole mum's side of the family is massive into horse racing. So I've had a bit of um a, a little bit of a schooling in it too. But you know rarely would you would I drive anywhere in Sydney you know in this day and age and mind you it probably was like 30 or 40 years ago but still to think that that was occurring man is like is out of this world you know you're in the big bag city you're just cruising down with the surfboard underneath your arm and you've got this beautiful white gray slash horse that you're just yeah. you're just riding confidently like it's almost it was- like a scene out of Lord of the Rings it is, man. It was an incredible uh, memory. When I went back there recently, I, I went when I went uh, at Pagewood, which was Morris Brothers. Uh, when I went from uh, you know like uh, from year eight to ten or whatever it is, year eight, nine, ten, yeah, uh, seven to ten. Um, I uh, because back then it was first form to fourth form, right? So I still struggle trying to add it up when I'm uh, this old. But um, I, I used to race the school bus down the uh, down the main street, and uh, I remember like Marty, my horse, used to be uh, have shoes on, like so they'd have um, like steel, um, you know, shoes on its hoofs, like hammered in, and so it could get pretty slippery. And I used to gallop down the middle of the medium strip, and it was only recently when I realised, like, oh my god, the medium strip was actually concrete; there was no grass on it, and it was probably about a metre wide, with traffic coming like one way on one side, one way the other. The school bus would be going past and I'd be trying to race the school bus with my horse and everyone would be hanging out the window, you know, screaming out and stuff and that. And uh, I just only realised the other day when I was down there and looked at it and went, oh, my God, I could have just killed myself. But back then, nobody give a shit about anyone. <laughs> you know, they just go, where are you going, Terry? I go, I don't know. And they go, no worries, man, just be back before dark. Yeah, that's so cool, you know. That's such a beautiful um, that's just such a beautiful way to live life. You know, I feel like uh, – being a parent these days too, like looking at the way um, the way kids are kind of cuddled these days, you know, and and, and mind you, they're probably yeah, and mind you, there probably is a lot more a lot more dangers out there or perceived ones, and I guess it can be propagandized through the news and 
docos and all this stuff that kind of gets in people's head and creates fear. So I can definitely see that. But, you know, there's something really simplistic and awesome about having your kid um, learning, you know, the ropes of life, so to speak, and like making those making those um, mistakes for them for themselves, you know, like it, it, it really teaches a life lesson. And I'm sure you made some mistakes whilst riding that horse and throughout your younger years that you'll never make again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was such an adventurous time. You know, we'd uh, down the end of my street, I used to have a dump, you know, so like the dump was the go-to place after school. So you just couldn't wait to get out of your school uniform and meet the boys down the dump because the dump was just a treasure trove of, uh, you know, car bonnets. And then we used to get car bonnets and we'd, it, when it rained down there, it turned into like a, a like a sludgy kind of lake. So we'd uh, get the car bonnets and we'd get sticks and that and we'd like make these rafts and that. It was just adventure land, man. And we'd go down there for crack a night and, you know, and, uh, and, and make bonfires and all that sort of stuff. It was a great time. I'm, look, I, I hate social media. Um, I mean, I have to use it because of my business and stuff for the surf reports and everything. But um, I hate the concept of social media, how people just aren't talking to each other anymore and people, you know, kids are turning into drongos because they're just looking at their phones all the time. And, you know, I used to like the old days when, you know, Jenny next door, I'd have to put a bucket on the next to the fence and then stand on the bucket and go, Jenny! You know, and then we'd have an actual conversation, you know. Oh, for sure, man. Yeah, no, massive, massive issues these days in regards to communication and just in regards to how kids are growing up. I think about that so much. I even think about... You know the the alarming um, moment that's coming up in my family's life, where my son um, is going to be given access to an iPhone or a computer. Like, how am I going to mediate that? And it just seems that like you're not allowed to grow up anymore. You know, you don't have a stage where you 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 go through your younger years into your teens and then your early adulthood. It's more so like all the information is just thrust into your hands straight away. You can access it. Um, it, you, you you pretty much got to be blind not to see it. And then people aren't communicating as much. And, you know, even my, me and my partner, when we put our kid to bed, man, it's hilarious sometimes. We'll go through half an hour of sitting in the lounge next to each other, glued to our phones because we're either replying to work emails, we're looking at Instagram, we're checking the weather, we're, 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 we're getting caught on these ridiculous um reels that just keep going and going like i get targeted for the weirdest shit like i get targeted for freddie flintoff bowling to jacques callus um back in like the you know the fucking test match series in 2010 where he bowled unbelievable like just weird shit you get caught up in you're like these are the distractions that are not allowing people to engage and communicate and you being such a strong communicator it means a lot coming from you man because that's one of the biggest things i've always admired about you tez you can connect with anyone and you're so happy go lucky you're a pleasure to be around and you know for me too i've tried to model a lot of my like the ways i communicate and, and hold myself um throughout situations off you know some of the situations that I've, I've i've seen you been through especially working at surfing south wales with you and and all the different times up and down the coast like it's so key, man. Communication is just one of the biggest parts of our life. And you're right. It's getting eroded away in front of us. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Look, I um, uh, uh, spent some time in Japan years ago and um, I really got into a concept of, uh, of ikigai. And it's basically iki in Japanese means uh, life and gai means passion. So it's your life passion. And, um, you know, I would suggest that people go out there and uh, Google this stuff. It's a really, really cool concept and a great way to live your life. What it is is really just um, 
it's like they're asking, you know, what do you love to do? What does the world need? What could you be paid for? And what are you damn good at, right? And where those four circles like cross over together in a little sweet spot right in the middle there, that's called the ikigai. That's like a roadmap to happiness, man. So this is a good tip for people out there who are thinking, you know, like what am I going to do with my life and stuff, you know. I think it's really important to just think about like what are you passionate about, what makes you happy, and if you can make that your job, it's like you never go to work ever. So, um, you know, I've been so lucky that I um, I understood and knew about this concept years ago. When I went and stayed in Japan with Mama-san, I got uh, like stayed in uh, when I went and surfed in Hibara at the uh, Marui Pro. It was a big competition back in the day. I couldn't afford a uh, motel, so I stayed with some locals and uh, – and so the mama son, uh, she was the one who told me about Ikigai and said, uh, and kept saying it all the time. And I asked a son who spoke a bit of English. I said, what's it, what is that? And she said, he said, mum said, because you're making money doing something that you love, that like you're, that's the most happy you can be. And it's sometimes better to take less money uh, for something that you know is going to make you more happy than to take the money for something that's not going to make you as happy. You know, as again, it's not about – it's about life experiences, mate, and the intensity of those experiences. And that's what life's all about. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't have said it better. I could not have said it better myself, man. I was just th- just thinking while you were explaining that mantra, you know, obviously you've had a very colourful career and, and you've you've ticked a lot of boxes, met a lot of people and and really, really created a lot of platforms for people to launch off. But I, I just wanted to ask you now, what are you doing with yourself, Tez? Like what keeps you busy on a day-to-day? Yeah, I've got my fingers in a lot of pies, man. I'm still working as a commentator in here in Australia uh, with bodyboarding, longboarding, surfing, um, you know, uh, stand-up paddleboarding, um, foiling. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm, I'm a go-to commentator. I have my own PA system generator and my own tents and stuff, my storage unit. So if someone needs me, I can supply the whole contest or just part of or just the sound or just rock up with just me in the mouth. So there's that. Um, I've been working in radio here in Newcastle for 33 years with Triple M, the Triple M Network and the Hit Hit Network. So that's a daily thing that I do seven days a week. Um, I do an online surf report, like it's called Tez's Newcastle Surf Report on both Instagram and Facebook. Um, I'm a surf coach and a high-performance surf coach with the uh, Port Stephens Surf School. So I work with those guys um, a lot, particularly from now until about April. Um, and then I've got a whole bunch of kids that I work with locally and I just scored a really cool job with the guys from Sanook, uh, which is a shoe company. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you're going to start to see the Sanook profile really ramping up here in Australia. I've, I've got the job as the uh, events and, uh, marketing, uh, promotions guy. So that's really cool. And the very last thing is, is that I play in a band. Um, my band's called Rocks On. It's a Billy Idol tribute band. Uh, we've been getting a lot of work here at uh, some of the really good venues like Lazotz, which is a sit-down venue. Um, the people I play with are really good musicians and they make me sound good. And it's a lot of fun, man. So, yeah, between all of that and trying to get a surf in now and again it's, uh, and catch up with my kids and stuff and my grandkids, um, yeah, it's a busy life. It's uh, And it's all stuff that I really love to do. Again, coming back down to that whole ikigai concept. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can t- you can tell every avenue of your career, career paths there are all littered with um your favorite things, man. And, and you're obviously extremely good at them. I just wanted to ask, you know, I, I know you do the surf report from abroad every now and again, but are you still a proud Nova Castrian? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think Newcastle is the 
greatest city in the world, to tell you the truth. And I have travelled a lot, as you know, um, and I could have lived anywhere. You know, there were times where I could have lived in Nazare. I'm really good friends with Walter, the mayor of Nazare. He said to me lots of times, I've got a house over here, Tess, come over here, man, I'll set you up with the council with an events job and everything. Um, you know, I could, have, I could have lived a few different places in my life, but I choose to live in Newcastle because Newcastle is freaking awesome. And, uh, you know, the CBD is right on the city. It's a mad surf town. Um, it's not too far from Sydney and it's well-placed. Uh, you can get up to the Goldie when you need to get there. Um, look, I just love everything about Newcastle, man. And, you know, and it's a, it's a big, it's a big uh, music town, you know, with uh, Silverchair and Screaming Jets, Spy versus Spy. You know, the history just goes on and on. So, yeah, I love Newcastle. I'm such a big part of the fabric of this town now that I, I really can't ever see myself ever leaving Newcastle. What's your favourite part of Newcastle, Tez? If, if, if you could pinpoint one thing that you just, you know, love immensely, what is it about Newcastle? I just love uh, how uh, down-to-earth everyone is, really, I guess. Um, it's probably the last bastion of uh, blue-collarism in Australia. And, you know, um, I love the comp- the concept of multiculturalism. We, we have a multicultural co- country, I know that. But here in Australia... Um, maybe there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of Aussies here, you know, and, you know, um, shoot me for saying it, but I like that, you know, I like it. I think it's one of the last places where that, you know, the fish and chip shops are owned by Aussies and, the and the, um, you know, the fruit shops are owned by Aussies and stuff like that. So it's a lot of Australiana up here. I, I, I love that about Newcastle, but I also love, um, you know, I love the, um, the, ge- the geography of the of the place it's got incredible waves it's we have four distinct seasons each year so you know unlike uh you know tassie or you know cairns where you're just stuck with one you know so i like this part of the coastline you have like a real feel for all the different seasons um and you know we can just scoot up to here in newcastle we can scoot up to uh, port stevens in like 40 minutes and you're surfing under a waves up there at box beach and you know all the various waves up there yeah you go 30 minutes south you're in the national park of fraser park and uh catherine hill bay and mooney mooney and you know ghosties and all the great waves that are down that way and then you go 30 minutes uh west and you're in the hunter valley wine territory so look as far as lifestyle goes you know there's nowhere in in, in australia maybe even the world that's surrounded with lifestyle like newcastle man i'm really surprised you didn't mention um tourism new south wales as one of your um avenues of your uh, recent career parts man like that was just so that that, that could have come off an ad there or i was reading that off a brochure that was fucking epic <laughs> i love it <laughs> yeah i probably i probably use that spiel in commentary a couple of times that's why it just comes off so easy but yeah yeah man i love newcastle and i love the people that are here um i love everything 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 about it look newcastle um you know from a marketing standpoint if you wanted to launch a product in australia what they would do would they would bring it to Newcastle and they would run it here for two or three weeks or a month. And if it worked, then they would uh, say, let's go with it nationally and globally. But if it didn't work in Newcastle, it was never going to work anywhere else. So what they do is they refer to Newcastle as what they call a, a test market um, because of the honesty of the population. They just, if something sucks, they'll tell you like that's art. It's too expensive, you know? So um, the fact that I've lasted here for 33 years in radio, working seven days a week, is, uh, you know, it, it, I'm pretty stoked about that because, like, this is a tough market and to last that long in this market uh, means that I'm doing something right. So that's pretty cool. And it also means you're true blue and it sounds like you've got denim in your veins, Tezza, because, like, as you said, the people around you would have just 
turn their nose up to you or just chucked you away because if you're not authentic and you're not doing the right thing or you're not, you know, bringing your end of the bargain to the table, it's kind of like, well, we're not just going to put up with that crap. Like a lot of stuff that I see um, around Sydney way, you know, and that probably is the issue with Sydney. There's a lot of... um, there's a lot of disconnection, I would say. You know, multiculturalism is a great term in theory, but it is quite hard to to push it in a society or just even let it evolve, not push it, so to speak, because people tend to want to, um, as communities do and tribes have back in, you know, thousands of years of history of the human race, they want to congregate with like-minded people in certain areas that are familiar to them. And, um, you know, it sounds like up in Newcastle, uh, much, much different to Sydney way that everyone is up there for the right reason. They're not so much in the rat race. They're just actually up there because they want to be there. They love it. They enjoy the geography and they just enjoy the vibe of the place. Here in Sydney, sometimes it feels like you're stuck here because you've got nowhere else to fucking go and you're just living week to week on a paycheck. Yeah, it's uh, it, I mean, it's scary. I get down there occasionally. You know, I went down to Bondi last weekend. We had the Australian Open of Surfing Grand Final at Bondi. Uh, it was a beautiful Saturday. Um, you know, ten thousand people on the beach and stuff like that. You know, I, look, I grew up in Sydney. I, you know, I've always had an affiliation for it and stuff. But uh, what I'm saying is that people there were just lost. You know, I'd see them hopping in their car. They'd be in the traffic and that. I got stuck in traffic. There was a Bruno Mars concert on. Uh, the races were on, and there was uh, like the uh, Australian uh, the 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 the, the uh, World Cup or something was on as well. <laughs> it was like I got stuck in traffic. Trifecta. Yeah, yeah, the mad trifecta uh, coming up Moore Park Road. I got stuck there for three hours. I'm like, God, I hate Sydney. And I was looking at the people in the cars, and I was just thinking, look at these people around me. They're just like numb. They don't even know what life really is or what they're missing out on. They're just slaves. It's almost like uh, you know when the you know, Egyptians, uh, the pharaohs are building the pyramids and they just got all those Egyptian people and said, no, we need you to work for us and build all these uh, build these things and work your ass off for 25 years, you know, for us. And then when you drop, we'll just replace you with somebody else. I don't know. It's kind of not the same. That's not, not the scene that I'm looking for. Um, I, I really just live in my own little bubble here, man. I've got so many things going on. Um, that I don't even have time really to lift my head up to worry about what other people are doing. And I've realised too, you know, at this age now, um, Luke, that, you know, I don't even have any bad vibes for anybody about anything. It's just a waste of time. You know what I mean? I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to be supportive of uh, of everyone, even uh, the IBC. Who, like, in the end, we had a bit of a sort of clashed swords with those guys. We um, gave them the whole APB portfolio, and I mean, it was really weird because we gave them the Facebook page. And they said we don't want it. And We said, well, there's you know, four hundred fifty thousand people on it, and like millions of views and all that. So this is for you. It's the sports, and they went nuts. Nah. We don't want it. We're going to start our own one. I'm like, oh, really? And they're wow. still not utilising it? No. No, the APB website was given to uh, Josh Kirkman and the writers to basically use as a platform for those guys now to just – because it's got such a big audience on it. But, um, you know, the, our YouTube channel, um, Facebook, Instagram, uh, the whole uh, portfolio that we had with um, with the tour – we just put it on a silver platter and wrapped it up nicely and went, there you go, guys, best wishes. Here's all the passwords, the keys to the kingdom. You know, you've got our blessing. And they said, we don't want anything that you guys did because we don't think you did a great job. Mm, and so I'm sensing right. a bit of um, resentment there, mate. Like obviously, you know, yeah. everyone, you should bury the hatchet and it is great to hear what you just said. That's a 
that's a life lesson everyone should um, adhere to, you know, especially myself. You can carry baggage around and hold these grudges and all this kind of shit and it doesn't do yeah. you any, any good because you're just manifesting the bad energy inside and that other person doesn't no. even know or gives two fucks. So when you just explain that situation then to me there in regards to not taking on 450,000 followers that could possibly, you know, catapult the sport back to where it needs to be. And again, not saying that IBC haven't done a great job and I'm sure they've put a lot of resources into their media and, you know, developing all their um, Instagram and Facebook pages, TikToks, whatever, you know, needs to be done. But that's almost just like a bit of a big fuck you back towards the organisation that they possibly resented before because you've got to take every help in hand you can. Like, geez. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was um, mainly really, I guess, one or two guys out of all the promoters. What's happened now, the IBC, when I really look at it, is that all the people that ran the competitions are now running the tour. So what they did was they just looked at what we were doing and said, why don't we just do that instead of them do it? The, the, The problem with that is that, um, we were very honest people with um, a lot of years of um, uh, experience. And the other thing is is that we're, we come from a, a well-governed country here in Australia. We're a little island in the middle of nowhere. Uh, when you give the reins to someone like uh, Chile, who has, like, uh, neighbours, uh, like, on all borders, um, and also the same thing with, uh, with Europe, um, then the country right next door to them just starts having a bit of a blow-up, you know, and say, why didn't we get it? And next minute it turns into a shit fight. So one of the good things about the fact that why um, I figured that it really worked to run world bodyboarding from Australia is because, A, we're in the middle of nowhere, B, we're um, a, a, an honest people with a, a good government, a good honest government. Um, you know, you go to South America, when it comes to anything to do with money from South America, it's a nightmare, man. I can't tell you how many times we went over there and every single time at the end of the contest we had some kind of drama, you know. So this just doesn't happen in Australia because we always, like, tick our boxes and, you know, double-check everything. So, you know, um, that's the only uh, that's the only negative part that I would say about it is that it's a shame that it's left Australia um, and that it's gone over there, where, you know, in Chile and Brazil because – um, you know, there's a lot of corruption in, in, in those towns. I'm not saying that the IBC is corrupt at all. In fact, I started off this convo by saying I think they're a, a doing a wonderful job, you know, and uh, it's taken them a couple of years to gain momentum because of, you know, uh, the timing of which we handed them the reins. But, um, you look, you know, it's just that I'm talking geographically is that uh, it's, uh, it, it's a different world over there, Luke, you know. It's a different world, man, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Definitely, man, definitely. I, I would probably add to that point too. Um, we obviously aren't as corrupt over here, but I definitely wouldn't give the politicians in Australia too much credit because they they can be a little bit stinky on the nose too. But, yeah, for, for sure, Tez, like when you look at the whole landscape of it and you see how the sporting um, – you know, the sporting codes around Australia continue to operate. You can see that money's plunge into them, you know, at at all stages because, you know, the Australian government realises that, one, it's great for tourism, two, it's a healthy option, three, you can generate good money from it, and four, it gets people off their asses and kicks people into gear and, and gives them hope and aspiration. So I, I fully, totally agree with you. But I, I wanted to ask, you know, thinking about all these comps, man, and, and you know all the time you've spent, um, you've you spent just managing them and just doing it so well. Like you've 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 definitely created so many cool 
cool everlasting moments in in especially my generation man growing up like i i can't um tell you how many times that i you know see things come across the tv or if there was an internet article or like a video highlights when like youtube became a bit more prominent back 10 years ago that um you know, you'd wait up and just want to see those releases and it was it was unbelievable bodyboarding was um you know it was such an exciting thing to watch and still is but during your whole time during um you know your time at the helm was there was there any regrets is there one regret that really stands out and it's like oh man i could go back and just you know fix a couple of things there ah gee um i guess you know when we had the really um really uh really good run with the IBA when the, the money came with Greg Taylor. Uh, there were times where when I was the manager, it was a really weird thing, Luke, because I was the general manager of the IBA as a non-profit organisation, right? And then we leased the tour to IBA Proprietary Limited, which was a company, private company owned by Greg Taylor and his investors. And then I went and worked for that company. So it was a weird sort of a position to be in where I was uh, representing the people, but I was also under on the payroll of, uh, of these new guys. So it was hard to um, play. I had to play good cop, bad cop lots of times, you know, it was really tough. Um, but what happened was about a year or two into the whole thing, I remember I called together um, Mike and Jeff and Tomega uh, and, you know, um, all the big players, and I called them into a motel room. I forget where we were, somewhere overseas, and I just said, I need to just get you guys together and just tell you something. I, this, I've seen things that just don't add up. And uh, they were like, whoa, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, I don't know. What are you guys suggesting? And almost to a man, they all just said, just sweep it under the carpet, man. Look the other way because, like, this is the best of sports has ever gone. And um, – I kind of wish now that I just had have blown the whistle a bit early before, uh, you know, before I, before I just walked out on the whole thing uh, because there was some bad stuff happening behind the scenes and um, there was some misappropriation of uh, funds and stuff like that. And I, I, took, an, I took a note because I, I knew that we had a contract with these guys and that it was a very specifically worded contract and that, you know, just even one or two clauses, if you broke them, the contract could be over and done with, you know, and we could just take the tour pack. So, um, but, uh, yeah, but so that was probably my biggest regret. I wish that, you know, when, when I wanted to be a whistleblower that I, I should have been, you know, instead I just kept my mouth shut and just went, all right, well, whatever you guys want to do. And, you know, and then word got back to, um, to the bosses, uh, that I was trying to, um, that I had this meeting and that I was like bringing it to the attention of the riders. And that was the beginning of the end for me, Luke, you know, so that's how it all really came to an end really was me. Um, you know, bringing them in, saying, "Have a look at what's happened here. I've seen some uh, some bad shit," and everyone went, "Oh shit, man!" You know, we don't even know if we wanted to see that. And then, um, and then, you know, having having to deal with all the fallout after that. You know, um, I remember uh, I, I was supposed to go down and get a, a pay increase because I was on twenty five thousand dollars for my role as the world tour manager for like those years of the IBA. So it was pretty bad um, wages, and then I had to pay tax on that. And then, um, you Hang know, on. there's no a non-profit s- organisation. You had to pay tax on your wages. No, this is when I was working for Greg. So oh, he was paying sorry, sorry, yeah, he twenty-five. I was only on ten thousand dollars a year with the IBA when it was non-profit. Just so you're aware, and that's the honest truth. I mean, you can go back and look at the financials, but uh, this thing, uh, being involved with this sport, to tell you the truth, it really left me financially pretty bad. 
because like during the whole major working part of my life for maybe like 15 or 20 years, um, I really like um, put a lot of effort and time and effort into it uh, when I could have been building another empire for myself. But I just thought, you know what, this is going to be worth it in the end. I've really got a lot of faith. We've got good people around us. Um, but I didn't see that, you know, curveball coming out of left field uh, where somebody else was going to trip me over, you know? Yeah, and steal your base from right underneath the Sandlot kids times two. Yeah, but um, everything happens for a reason, man. And, um, you know, I have no uh, – I'm not bitter at all and I made so many great friends on the uh, bodyboarding tour and I guess a lot of these people would be listening to this around the world. So, hi, guys. And, you know, I miss, I miss you all in all the different countries that I went to and – you know, people really um, were really appreciative of, uh, of of what I did. They could see that, like, it was a life-consuming job. And the funny thing about it, Luke, is that, you know, with great graphic artists and good website builders and stuff like that, like, we appeared to have, like, an incredible tour. But the reality was is that, like I said, I was being paid 25 grand a year. There was no money uh, behind the scenes, um, you know, and people are going, like, why don't you do stuff like the WSL? And we're like, well, that's a multi-million dollar company with, you know, like – you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of investment and stuff like that. So we didn't have that kind of money, you know. Um, so it was a um, it was a, it was a pretty tough one, you know, because I couldn't say to people like, you know what, bodyboarding's broke. But what I could do was like um, put this facade out there to say that like this is what it can be, you know, and and that's what it looked like it was. But the reality was that like a, one of those westerns in a Hollywood movie when you walk around the back of the main street, it's just a bit of four B two holding it up. So there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of uh, you know substance behind it, unfortunately. And you know when the substance did come with the investment, then somebody else got their sticky fingers into it and ruined it anyway. So you know, look at the end of the day, uh, I mean, despite all these stories, man, I have nothing but um, I love bodyboarding. I think it's a great way to ride a wave. I think if I was a grommet and I was born again and I had another opportunity, I might have even been a booger. I have ultimate respect for bodyboarders. I think that they do it for the right reasons and that it's a radical sport. And, you know, when I watched Fronton the other day, I was like, oh, my God, these guys putting their life on the line, doing big high-flying moves and stuff. Like, it is a It's absolutely fucking nuts. It's not. It's a nuts sport, man. And if this could be marketed properly um, and if these, uh, you know, you've got the egos out of the way, some of the big labels and stuff like that, you know, um, I think that, uh, you know, that, that bodyboarding still could have a pretty rosy future. There's no doubt about that. Man, humans can be so progressive, but they can also put just big roadblocks in front of themselves when it comes to their own ego, you know, like, and obviously that, that happened um, within the IBA days and someone was getting too big for their boots and all that kind of stuff. Is there any way without getting into the legalities of it, Terry, that, you could give us more of an insight at uh, what the red the red flags were at the at, at the time and what was really making your ears ring. Uh, just the fact that uh, things just didn't add up, you know. Like so, I was really big on because uh, we was always so broke all the time, Luke. That we I'd always have to double check the budget for everything, you know. And like we just got really good at doing stuff from virtually nothing. You know, so when the money came around, they started splashing it out big time. I'm like, where is this going? You know, so I'd ask for copies of budgets and stuff like that. And so I could start to see where things were going. And then I started to realise that some of this money is not just being spent on the IBA, um, that it's going elsewhere um, into like private labels and stuff like that without getting too specific. Mm. But I mean, you can, uh, you know, add that one and one. So, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I remember we went to Hawaii once and 
Um, the turbo team went there before us and stayed for three weeks in a house in Hawaii. And when I got to, when we got there, it was the judge's house, so the house was filthy. We cleaned it up. Um, eventually, after the contest, the guy came who owned the house, and he was one of the producers from that Lost. Remember the series Lost? Yes. Yeah, so yep. Talking to this dude, I'm like thinking, no way, this guy's a producer of Lost. What a classic! Because it was about when Lost was on, right? So. And uh, I said, oh, I've got to pay for the uh, pay for the um, place. He goes, no, man, it's all been paid for. And I said, oh, you got a copy of the invoice? And he said, yeah, yeah, here. And he said, give me your email. And he sent it to me. So what they did was they had paid for the three weeks of the turbo team and also the two weeks for us so the judges all in one payment. So, you know, I kind of went, what? Oh, that's not right. You know, that should have been paid for by somebody else, not by that. Um, so mm-hmm. that was the of me starting to take notes and in the end I think I ended up with like 50 or 60 different breaches of the contract that I'd noted and said and that's what I went to the world's best bodyboarders with and said check this shit out you guys um and everybody was like oh man we don't need controversy right now you know yeah so I can kind of see their side too but at the same time I can't it's a it's a very hard situation to be in I, I I don't um envy you know not being in that situation let's put it that way yeah yeah i mean and i don't know what happened to greg i mean he just uh you know disappeared i've never heard or seen of him since i'm sure that he's still alive somewhere and i mean if you listen to this greg i mean you know it's a it's a shame that everything ended the way that it did mate because well i came in there with pure intent and uh you know you hired me for the guy that i was so that we were you know we're already doing the job so it was a shame that uh you know everything ended the way that it did i hope that life's working out for you mate when no matter where you are and Tezza, you know, very well said, and it goes back to your mantra of, of obviously holding no bad juju and, and letting people do what they need to do and you just focus on yourself. But, I mean, also thinking about the the careers that cut short, like it kind of cut Andrew Lester's career short. You know, he was more in his twilight years but still absolutely ripping on the boog. Jacob Romero got the, the rug pulled out from underneath his feet. Sam Shacken was on the up, and he's been a good mate of mine for a while. And, you know, a very talented bodyboarder. Like Sam can do shit on a bodyboard in style and effortlessness ways that, like, you know, not many people can muster. And he had that true Australian style that I, I absolutely love. So it was, you know, and Jared Houston and, and plenty of other. Kingy, for example. It's just crazy to see how yeah. that was such a pivotal moment in the um, the turnover of the industry. What happened? I mean, these kids spent years trying to qualify for the tour and the year that they qualified um, or a couple of years after they qualified, the, the whole thing didn't exist anymore. You know, so that was the sad part about it is that people uh, spend a lot of time and money and uh, training and, you know, effort, all that sort of stuff. You know, they were talking about Sam Bennett, Jones uh, and Chase and, you know, all the young Aussie guys who are um, qualifying and, uh, you know, paid so much money to travel around the world uh, at that time. And uh, we all had such we, – we all had a really uh, great – you know, as, as bad as it was, uh, there's, you know, there's probably more good moments than bad ones, to tell you the truth, mate. You know, like uh, we, we were all just living the dream during those moments, you know, when, the, when we were on tour and going to Puerto Rico and Mexico and, uh, you know, all of these – Hawaii and all these exotic locations, you know, so Reunion Island and – you know, um, Canary Islands and, uh, you know, you name it. I mean, it's just, you know, the travel that we did was incredible. So, look, at the end of the day, um, I don't know. It it is what it is, right? I mean, you can always wish for something different. (laughs) It's just what happened. I think when I was watching Fronton the other day, Luke, to tell you the truth, and I know that we're just about to wrap it up soon, but 
uh, when I was watching Fronton, I must admit I watched it for about two or three hours. I was listening to the commentary and watching how they rolled the ads out and the stuff that they were saying. I was pretty impressed. They did a really good job. That was the first thing I thought. And the second thing I thought was like, oh, man, you know, I, I did kind of miss it. And I thought, uh, you know, what a shame that, you know, things weren't different and that we didn't have real good, honest people that were uh, working with us at the time. And if they did, then where would I be now? I'd probably have a nice house and I would have done all right out of the whole thing. You know, but um, look, uh, you know, with all that said, um, you know, greatest years of my life and some of my best friends are bodyboarders, man. And if I ever came back, I'd probably be a bodyboarder. You know, I love I love the sport. I love everything that you guys stand for out there. Keep booging, man. And I've still got a bit of life in me. I'll be uh, around at some competitions for a, a couple of years yet, you know. Well said, Terry. And just before we go, man, if, um, you know, you were to get the call up again, would you would you heed the call? Would you go back and commentate on the, the world tour? Well, I did get a, a call to actually be the head of a, a rebel organisation to the IBC, and I kind of uh, I Whoa, entertained. Mic drop. Stop the press. Hang <laughs> yeah. on a second. Jesus, yeah, yeah. that's a bit of a truth bombshell, brother. Yeah, yeah. So um, what it is is uh, I can't really say too much, unfortunately, until they uh, lift the lid off this thing. But it's out of Portugal. Uh, these guys have got some ideas about how to – they want to have a, a, a league, but they don't want to have a world tour. They don't want to challenge the IBC on when it comes to, like, uh, crowning world champions and competition bodyboarding. But what they do have is a different format um, of uh, riding, which I can't tell you about because they've got it uh, painted, but it's fucking awesome. And then the other thing is, is that uh, Rockstar Energy Drinks are really interested in what they're doing. So what they've done is that these guys are called um, the X League. It's like Extreme Bodyboarding League, XBL. That's their that's their uh, mantra. Um, so what they want to do is they want to show bodyboarding in the best light, like uh, uh, globally. So they started an alternative tour where it's going to be heaps cheaper for the sanction fees and also um, a slightly different uh, spin on the competition and uh, also – a fling for bling, like a toe-out um, tour, would be also working in conjunction with the with the XBL. So, um, um, you know, right now I was looking at the IBC and the XBL, but tell you the truth, I'm not too sure which way to go um, if we have a, a competition in Australia. Um, yeah, uh, you've got to think about the big picture. Are Aussies, uh, have, do they have aspirations to be on the world tour? I'm sure they do, but are they realistic aspirations? Well, probably not. We just no one in this country can afford to do that tour. It's too far away and it's too expensive. So you know, right now, yeah, you're very right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, you know, uh, I I think it's uh, you know maybe we could bring the New South Wales State Bodyboarding titles to Kiama and couple it up with the next BL event and do a a fling for bling. Uh, You know, bring uh, Rawlins and Winnie and all the legends back down there and uh, just try and you know try and uh, like. pump it up a little bit in our country doing that. You know, I think that's a better option. You know what, Tezza, you know, and I know I'm mindful of the time and you've got other commitments, but I just wanted to say that like the, the Kaima idea is amazing, you know, and I see why it's been placed there because of, you know, the, the community support, the council support, it's located just south of Sydney. It's quite ideal. I mean, the one big thing that really is lacking in that competition, and we all know it, it's just un- unfortunately there and we can't not talk about it, the wave probably doesn't produce as much as it should. Like if you look at the likes of Fronton and Eureka and Pipe and Chopes and, you know, I know Chopes who don't have a comp there. We, 
we once did. But those sort of waves really do promote heavy aerial-based bodyboarding that, um, you know, barrel and aerial-based bodyboarding that, that really promotes the sport. Is there any chance of tapping into that roaming um, aspect of the Climate Pro and taking it back down to Nuggan again? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, I mean, I spoke with uh, Surf New South Wales about that concept. I spoke to them also about the, the potential if uh, the island came on during the time that we had the event that we could, you know, uh, book the island as well at Shark Island. So um, anything's possible, mate. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, um, you know, uh, so let's let's see what the future holds. I mean, uh, the past has been a little bit checkered, but it's also been incredible. Um, you know, I, 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 like I said, I think that the uh, – I still think there's a future for this board, in, uh, not just globally, but uh, particularly in Australia because it has had a lid put on it. But um, I feel like the lid's coming off and it's like the popcorn starting to pop and it's just about to blow right up again, you know. So um, let's uh, let's hope so. And, uh, you know, I'll just be sitting back here and watching as a keen old man and who had a big interest in the thing at one stage. And if I can ever help, uh, yeah, I'm always here to help. That's what I would say. Oh, Tezza, you can't be hanging up the tonsils just yet, mate. You've 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 got to come back and and give us one more shower. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. No, I'll always be here for the commentary. The hard part is the behind the scenes stuff, putting the, the contest together, and that there's, it takes months of work and paperwork and all that stuff. That's the stuff I'm not really uh, really stoked on. But um, you know, when we work with Surf New South Wales, they do a lot of that stuff uh, behind the scenes for us, and we just rock up and roll the contest out. So let's see. Fingers crossed for Kaima, maybe May or uh, June next year. Happy days. Will you just let let us know if it's going ahead, man? I'll be there with bells on. Yeah, that'd be unreal, Luke. Thank you, mate. Happy days, Tezel. Man, I want to thank you so much for coming on. You know, I really appreciate your time. You're such a knowledgeable feather, fella. Sorry, you're so well spoken. Um, it's been an incredible chat, and I've got so much out of it. So, thank you again. No, thanks, Luke. I've always enjoyed your your company, man. You know, and uh, and and to all those people out there in bodyboarding world, um, you know, thanks for the memories, everyone. And uh, you know, it's not over yet. That's what I got to say. <laughs> oh, happy days. Sayonara, Tezza. Thanks, we'll it was all a pipe guys. dream Cheers, Watching buddy. bodyboarding up on TV Deep at reef, watching tension repeats Eating bakery feeds at 18 Living the dream with no sunscreen